The following program recorded in November of 1992 describes the making of Jelly's Last Jam. Hello, I'm SDC Director Choreographer Edie Cowan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to uh, the discussion of the making of Jelly's Last Jam. I am surrounded by some of the most extraordinary people in the American theater, and each one of them could take an hour uh, to talk to you about what they have done on this particular production. But I wanted to introduce who is who. To the right is Hope Clark. Hi. <laughs> Susan Birkenhead. George Wolfe. Luca Henderson, Robin Wagner, Jules Fisher. Well, George, I have to start with you, mm-hmm. since we're talking about how this came about and how it was made. So I guess the obvious first question is, what was the germ of the idea of doing the piece? How did you start? Well, actually, the, uh, it was back in 1986 that uh, the, the producers, uh, Margot Line and Pam Coslow, came to me up with the idea of doing a musical about Jelly Roll Morton. They had been working on it hmm. for about four or five years. That There was a workshop involved that Luther was involved that I had no connection with, that they did it and they raised a lot of money, but they decided they weren't pleased because they didn't want to do a review. They wanted to do something that was more reflective of the man and the times and somewhat about jazz or something. I'm not really sure. They weren't really sure exactly what it is they wanted. They just know that they wanted something with more weight. Did they approach you first as writer or yes. director or both? I was as book writer. Uh, I, would, I came on board as a book writer. Jerry Sachs was actually the director when I came on board. Yeah. Um, and um, so they sent me all this material and I said, well, okay, well, let me try to figure out how to do it. But the thing which I knew that somehow the show, I wanted the show to be a, as much about his personality or, or him as a human being as, as it was about what he created. Mm-hmm. Because somehow I didn't like I said, I didn't want him to, and then he wrote, and then he wrote, and then he wrote, and then he died. So it was, it was not, you know. Yes. So then, once you said, yes, I'd like to find out about the man, mm-hmm. and you started to write, then who came on board, and who left, and how did it evolve from there? Uh, what happened was that um, I had met Susan on another project, which uh, was an exciting project that didn't quite work out. Fortunately, and uh, so I knew that somehow that the, that there was an attempt to try to use Jelly Roll Morton's actual lyrics, which were fine and entertaining and certainly reflective of a very complicated world, but they didn't, as they say, progress the story along and didn't reveal some of the darker little corners that were more interesting to me about the character. So then Susan came on board as the lyricist and, and I was book writer. We started working together, and we worked with this guy who was a quote, who was a, a excellent pianist trying to just shape some numbers, and it became very clear that we couldn't just do the Jelly Roll Morton material, that somehow that the material had all this theatrical energy to it, mm-hmm. but we wanted to bend and, sh- and shift and twist it so that it would go on the journey that the material was going on. And then Luther rejoined the project at that time. And then somewhere around the middle of that, I became the director and I because I started directing other stuff, and they said, oh, he can direct, so then why don't you be the director? And that's, sort of, that's, that's almost as deep as it was. And uh, then Hope Clark and I had worked together mm-hmm. on numerous projects, so she became a part of the team, and then these brilliant gentlemen, when it became real and they had money, they joined in. <laughs> <laughs> and when was that? Stop. I think that was, pro- that was around... A, uh, the thing which, was, which I think was very important and, and very significant for the project is it went through various uh, workshops, fundamentally at the Marte Forum, uh, where we were able to you know, not know what we were doing in the process of discovering how to do what we wanted to do. And then um, that all culminated with a workshop. Actually, uh, Robin came on board around the time 
after the Los Angeles production, and Jules did too. So we, we after the production or the workshop after the production there was there was there was the all the workshops in Los Angeles culminated in a production that turned out to be really quite a successful experience but it was also clear what we wanted to heighten what we wanted to change what what more interesting or peculiar corners we, we wanted to t- take and how visually and, and it became very important of, of how to manifest some of the visuals of the show and um, and that's when they came on, on board did you see the Los Angeles production I, I did you did Ron? Yeah. and I didn't I did uh-huh. not see it. And what made you want to come on and... Well, I just I thought it was very exciting material. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that uh, George and Hope had put something together, which uh, I wanted to work on. It was clearly a very, very uh, uh, challenging mm-hmm. project. And uh, how to, to help uh, uh, define it in terms of uh, just space, uh, which had, hadn't been solved, I thought, in L.A. So when I started talking to... to to George and Hope there, it became very clear that, that there was work that I could do, maybe. And uh, then I think uh, he invited me. And you said so, yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and what was the biggest leap for, for you? You say it was about space, looking at the... Well, just trying to, of... trying to help define uh, the material, because uh, it, I, I thought it wasn't uh, clear what, what it was about when I saw it. Uh-huh. And I think probably... Uh, uh, George, you explained that to me in a way. It wasn't wasn't what you were looking for either. Are you talking about the, the, the space? LA production, yeah. yeah well, I think it was it was earthbound. I mean, it was just, so much of the play takes place in shadow and dark and memory and and dream, and that and and things appear and disappear and, and the concept that there was this giant void ever present, ready to devour reality, ready to devour Jelly if he didn't go on his journey correctly, and somehow the space there was was not magical enough or, or peculiar enough so as to create the illusion of that dynamic. Yeah, it what, was what scenic. Became, yeah, it was scenic. It was a scenic solution, and what it, what it wanted to be was uh, a dramatic solution in some way. And uh, uh, in, in trying to uh, find out what that was, uh, we took a kind of point of departure that we would only see what uh, Jelly remembered. So it was, uh, we were able to eliminate uh, about 90% of the scenery and just get down to uh, the basic pieces that were being used it's or touched. Like a filmic point of view. In a sense, yeah. It was like watching only close-ups. And since everything oh. came out of the void anyway, in, in the way that uh, Georgia conceived it, uh, it, was, uh, it was a good departure uh, and an, uh, an easy one for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's always easier to uh, design nothing than just design something. <laughs> <laughs> he and makes it sound easy. Yeah, it's not I was so going to say. Well, it, makes, it puts oh, the onus on the lighting designer. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so... I was uh, not involved with the production, and I, it was an accident, actually, that another lighting designer was unable or unavailable to design it at the time. And uh, Robin was the first one to call me and say, uh, this is an exciting project, and it has a lot to do with light. It's about light. You, mm. You'd be interested. And then I read it, and it was indeed uh, one of the few scripts I read that the first paragraph said something about light, and the last paragraph of the whole script said something about light. And uh, one in which the absence of light, what they keep talking about, the void, was, was a character. Uh, the absence of light or darkness was somewhere. As if there was no light on stage, that was some place to be or some place you might not be. Uh, so that was a terrific challenge. It was a, a chance to do something I'd never done before, and it was rewarding. Were you thinking that when you were writing? Were oh, you yeah. About- yeah, black, blackness as a character, blackness as a uh-huh. force, as an energy, blackness as where the music came from, as the rhythm came from, as the place where these people came from, blackness as this thing which Jelly was not a part of. So it was all, so it was all this, this, this force, this dynamic that was ready to devour a man, so that therefore his musical was existing inside of this world ready to devour him. And, and, I was, and somehow that tension felt right. That, that's that... Uh, you know, not knowing what death is, and this really wasn't sort of death. This is sort of that period where you've just died, but, but you're not quite in that other energy. And, and I also wanted it somehow, it was like returning back to a source, you know, and, and I mean, a, a, a very primal, powerful, all-consuming force, and that, that energy was what was behind all the singing and dancing. So can we get to the singing and dancing for a moment here about (laughs) how you, can we just for a second talk about Luther, Susan, and you, how you dealt with the original material, made it work for the book, 
where Susan's lyrics came in and how new music was written and how the old music, can, can you help organize that Me? kind of talk? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I, I think that the, the um, I think it was very much so going back to the darkness metaphor. We, we, we were really going down a, a, a very dark tunnel. Certain, certain images or scenes would come to me like the bed scene of, with Jelly and Anita. That sort of came instantly. It's like, okay, chart, chart their entire relationship from their series of, of, of bid conversations. So we see them at the beginning of the relationship and sort of at a turning point of the relationship. Right. So I sort of wrote these, these scenes, and then there's this, there's this song called Jungle Blues that has this gong in the middle of it, I think. And, and there was something seductive about it, but it wasn't quite right. So then I then turned it over to Susan to... Because the scenes were here and here and here and here, and which had nothing to do with a linear thought process, so that somehow what was going on with these honeys, who became like a Greek chorus, was they were the thread, but they were not. We're now in Toledo. We're now in Kansas. They were sort of they were threading it through with the rules of of love and the dynamic that is going on between the two characters, so that therefore, and then I think, and so that they, they could embody for lack of better words, the sexuality so that Jelly and Anita could explore the intimacy between the two did of them. Did you know that when you were writing that, or did that come working with Luther and Susan? It was, it was sort of like... Yeah, it grew together. sort of together. I, I, I knew that there was, there was, some, some, there was definitely some tension between attraction and intimacy and the difficulty between men and women, et cetera, between working out that dynamic. And, and that somehow with a very powerful person who has a very, very arrogant energy and, and this woman who is also just as powerful, just as arrogant, that tension would be intensified. Mm -hmm. so, so, Susan, what did you start with? What did George give you? And where they, did, how did you what was the process Essentially, for you? what he's, you mean with this particular scene, yeah. what he said was, uh, we're going to encapsulate this, this entire relationship in one musical, dramatic moment. Um, and then said what he came to say over and over again to Luther and me, um, it is, you know, this is a pivotal moment in the show. Everything turns on this. So write it. Um, and, and here the same were these, rap on all of it. <laughs> so here were these little scenes and this incredible emotional dynamic. And here was this very monotonous, wonderful piece of music, but that had a certain sameness. Um, and we began to work on it. And there's a lyric in the middle of, of this number that has become famous because I suppose it's the first time that anybody has ever sung that particular word on a stage, um, somebody who wasn't a rap singer. <laughs> and um, I remember at the day that, that we had gotten to that point in it, and I said to George, in other words, what it really should say is, is Loving is a fuck you blues. And he said, go for it. <laughs> um, I said, but George, you know, I mean. It's Broadway. He it says, do it, do it, what the hell. And so we did it. But it, it became very clear after a while that, that this was one of those centerpieces of the show that was never going to change because it was, it was so successful and it was so symptomatic of everything about the show, the, the, the marriage of music and lyric and dramatic scene. But I also think it's very important to point out that, that, that it was an instrumental, so that therefore, which is where Luther can talk about more, that where it, there are riffs yeah. and breaks and all these other sort of musical things where dumb instruments had to be transformed into voice. Well, yes, I think that one of the things that you were, uh, apropos of what you were saying, is that this music, uh, with its repetition, with its, it was, it was uh, uh, um, being so repetitive and so forth like that, was what was used, it seemed to me, is what George used in terms of that scene to, to, to activate the drama of the thing. Now, it, it seems to me that this is a, this is a spot where in a jazz music, per se, you know, that blues, I don't, I don't remember exactly where it, came from, where it came from, but the original thing would be fine, I think, if <laughs> you would just do this in a club and everybody's dancing close and there's, uh, you know, guys just playing the saxophone, playing these ribs. You could do that for 15, 20 minutes. Nobody would be bothered. But they would be staying right there. You wouldn't be telling a story. Nothing would move forward. There would be no acceleration of the dramatic sequence. And I think that that's what, what happened. I tried very, 
to not interfere with that monotony as much as possible uh, without being accused of not arranging or writing anything. (laughs) But uh, I think that that points up one of the big things about the music, and that is that uh, jazz music, as we say, blues music, uh, so forth, has a different agenda than for itself than music that we have under the proscenium arch. And uh, it needs to have a little more dramatic uh, uh, direction in order to be successful as a theater piece. And this is what I think that uh, was so exciting about about this particular project. Jelly Roll's music had to do with entertainment, practically pure and simply, I think, and did not, did not necessarily wish to go further. I think he got caught uh, unwarranted. He didn't, I don't think he knew exactly how far he was going to go with this or how far it was, what it was going to mean. And uh, uh, our problem was to make his music or his jazz or whatever, to make it behave, suit our purposes or whatever it was under the, under the proscenium arch, under George's guidance. This is what I, I think we tried to do. And uh, I don't know what else to say about the music. You have to ask me questions about it. Uh-huh. Um, how, what, what actual adjustments did you make with that, with the, with the uh, original Jelly Roll piece for that particular That segment? particular number? Yeah. Not a lot. I did, I did some, I did, uh, I, I, I added some, uh, some blues riffs. I tried to leave certain spaces for the extraordinary orchestra that we have to 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 fill an improvis to make an improvis uh, improvisation feeling you know um, uh, one of the definitions I guess you would say of jazz is that is it is an, it is improvised actually jazz is born of improvisation jazz is a part of improvisation. Uh, so and it's it's a form of improvisation, and so the point the fact is that without that feeling, we don't have the feeling of the blues. We don't have the feeling of, of jazz or whatever it is. So we tr- we try to give a little space for the performer to do the thing that he would have a lot of space to do if he were in a nightclub or someplace like that. And are they actually improvising, or are they acting as if? They're Depends on which bar you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally. Quite literally. That okay. particular piece, for instance, starts uh, with something. What's, what's Jelly's? Uh, it says, says knock, knock, right? And we said, we, we, uh, there's a, uh, about three or four, four bars or so that I composed. It goes into, into, the, uh, into, the, into the piece proper uh, as, it, as it progresses. There are little interludes. I sometimes have, uh, uh, have uh, there's one particular space of maybe uh, four or eight bars where uh, uh, it's written, it would be written for Jerome Richardson, you see. In other words, this is Jerome's piece, little spot right here. Um, we have some notes that are written down so that when Jerome's not there, yeah, someone else can play them. But basically, Jerome knows, and I've known him a long time. See, we, we write for the person. Music has to be, uh, jazz music has to be written for not an instrument, but for the instrumentalist. It doesn't matter whether he's playing a kazoo or a harmonica or a saxophone or whatever. You know what I mean? So this is, what's, this is what is written, is what uh, is written to the personality of the people that are going to play it. So you ask me what's written and what's in I'd have to. I really would have to take right, it bar by bar. Yeah. I, I think. That, I think that structure is very similar to a lot of the show. There are certain, particularly in some of the tap sequences, that are very rigid, and then there's a section which allows for the for a chance to break the form, and then you go back onto the form. And 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 I think that that there was a conscious or, or, or unconscious effort to 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 try to have the structure of the whole show be more like 
a jazz song than your traditional musical where there is a main melody line going through and then there are riffs and then there are breaks and you take little detours, but ultimately everybody is obeying the melody line, which is in fact the storyline, which is the thrust of what the idea is about. Just as a little aside, I think, not to detract or say any, uh, from, from Jericho, but I think that this very process about which we're talking is one of the things that uh, marks or makes, let's say, the, the, the Duke Ellington an extraordinary person in the history of music and musical composition because his compositions are so constructed, are so done that uh, you must, you must, uh, any time that they're done by anyone else, uh, you become merely the custodian of someone else's effort. That's not a good way to put it. George knows the words. The, the, the thing is that it's not like uh, a prelude and fugue, uh, because there are probably it's it, it's probably not as individual as that. But it points up the fact that composition, his composition, had to be was composed of music that is of notes, time values, and people. I won't go further with that. But the point is that uh, I I've, I kind of think of this show. Uh, as a kind of a Duke Ellington composition, I sometimes think that George is a is a, is a kind of a theatrical Duke Ellington in the way that he <laughs> he, it, he makes other people do their thing his way. You know. <laughs> <laughs> is this a breakthrough for um, structure in the American <clears throat> music theater? That is. One is usually instructed in school that uh, certainly if you're going to be writing a piece or a commercial piece that goes on and has a long run, that every note has to be written down. The whole concept of uh, jazz as a theatrical form or that improvisation can be built into uh, a score. Is this new? I don't know if it's new. I mean, Before I, Broadway. I, don't, I, I, mean, I don't know. I, I really don't know. The thing which is what I think, it's, it's a peculiar dynamic because everyone, there are certain scenes where the actors are allowed to, to emotionally riff, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only way they can do that is if they are rigidly devoted to their job. Cause, and there are times where they riff and they, and they end up in another show. And then you have to go, no, 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 no. But I think that it's, for, for the most part, they are, they're, they're very, responsible and we spent a lot of time in rehearsals talking about what gesture meant in terms of each of the decades that that the play exists in and why everything mattered and why every single thing thought emotion feeling was telling the story so as a result of that they have this sort of encyclopedia of the show built into their being so that therefore when they do do that or do this or whatever then it's, it's generally within a defined vocabulary it's not their own individual vocabulary which is, again, though, a jazz form. Precisely, precisely. Well, I think that my, uh, Grandma Mee's thing, you know, uh, the getaway boy is a very good example of that. Here's this, here's this lady who's ex- an extraordinary singer. Uh, and, and I wrote, a, I thought, a pretty good little piece there, you know. Uh, but uh, if you remember, George, we had quite a time in California and, uh, and otherwise in at, at one point, I, the, the composer in me got the better of me, and I said, I want that note, you know. And, of course, that note wasn't to be played on that particular instrument that we were, we were dealing with. It. And uh, I must say that George was wise enough to, to say, maybe we better not play that note. And we had a fine performance in California. It was not this performance. It was not this performance. But it was the performance of the lady we had in California. This lady has got a different performance. And she, too, has certain things that must be accommodated <laughs> in a compositional way. And hopefully we did that. Yeah, it's also fascinating because I think with that also that moment where, where Grammy Meese throws Jelly out, very talented people performed that number. But once the actress and Ducanet took over that number, who is a force of nature when she sings, <laughs> it, 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 it elevated every single thing. It elevated the staging, it elevated the lyrics, it elevated the music to another level. And, and she still, though, listens. She, I know she listens to George, she listens to me. She does things, we, we, no line readings do you give this lady, you know. But 
you you suggest things to her, and if you're able to suggest the right thing, she comes out with what you had in mind. Which is jazz. Which is jazz, yeah. Can we talk about that in terms of staging and, and uh, musical staging, choreography, how you and Hope work together on that? Just well, I think aliens invade Hope's brain and my brain, <laughs> so as we work together. I mean, I think, I think the thing which is very fascinating is, um, is like I, I, I have, I think I have ex-physical voc- ex vocabulary, so I will take a, a number to a certain level, just, just in terms of bare-bone stupid staging, and then Hope then turns it into this other creature, mm-hmm. which is, I guess easily called dance uh, and, and and then there's and, and then there's this back and forth process from my understanding it where we're in between the staging and the dance it goes back and forth until both both you know rhythms and realities are served mm-hmm. can you talk a little about that hope I mean he gives shows you what he calls his stupid staging and then you create a creature yeah. can you talk about that well, there's nothing to say about it. It is staged so that it's not, now we're going to have a dance number. Now we're going to go back to um, the show. It is staged so that it is all uh, one piece, but we made an attempt to do that, so that the choreography is almost like a, a living or moving script. It doesn't stop. Now we're going to dance and uh, so we try to take and, and, his ideas and create it moving. If that does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was almost yeah. any and any time we tried to do a number, it would not work. Right. Because you know, because it it stuck out like I'm now a number. It's not and, a number. Know, it was fascinating. Now, what about the difference in? Um, say, vocabulary and movement. In, in L.A., you did not have your leading uh, character uh, a tap dancer. No, it was not designed for not. a tap dancer, for tap. So when Gregory came on, or, or you, how, did the, how conceptually did you either make the change or envelop his, um, his gifts with it, or was that a choice you wanted to, to play with that? Well, it became this, this sort of difference. obstacle that actually was sort of, it, it turned from an op- obstacle into a fascinating concept, just in the sense that that the fundamental base. We're talking about jazz a lot tonight, but I think that's what the show is. That 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 the fundamental basis of jazz is rhythm, is percussion, and so that therefore this this peculiar thing where somebody's feet go up and down on the ground called tap became this a way of exploring the the percussive. Um, Parenting of jazz in, in 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 a peculiar way that 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 it, it was it was just fun sort of seeing tap done with a very sort of aggressive energy that fits more say into African dance than just glide 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 tap 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 lightly tap lightly and uh, and and I think the, the same sort of rigid rules apply to every element of the sh- of the show if it does not have quote unquote cultural integrity you know, or, and is not continuing to tell the story or revealing emotion, it is not allowed. Mm-hmm. So, that's, okay. so, so, so that was sort of the rigid rule about every single aspect mm-hmm. of the show. And I think that the, that the concept of the cultural integrity was very important because it, we were intent on not, um, not, not sacrificing context so we could get joy and laughter and ha, 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 ha that somehow there was this intricate and, and brilliant uh, energy that exists between sort of pain and confusion and culture and, and history and energy and elegance and performance. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of times you get the energy and the performance, but you don't get the other. So, the, so there was, it was, you know, in the music and the staging and, and, and the lighting and everything, wanted that blend of those, of those conflicting textures, which, which I think oftentimes, particularly in, in, in musicals featuring African-American people, is stripped away. And once you got that amount of percussion or, or um, looking at jazz now with feet and, and, and rhythm, how did that affect the other elements, if at all? Say, did it affect the other choreography? Did it affect Luther's work? Did it affect what Robin and Jules were doing at all? 
No, I would say it added. Uh, I would say it added. Yeah, it started there. Yeah. It started there. So yeah. you reconceived. Once Gregory came on, you reconceived. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, certain I numbers, see. yeah. I mean, there was, and there was, and there was, there was one point where uh, I, it was, I was just, I was, I was fascinated. It was interesting because the number that Greg and Savion do in the workshop was a number, and it got us the money, so we were happy. But, uh, <laughs> but, but when we went back into rehearsal, uh, we spent extensive amounts of time, Luther and, and, and Hope and me and Susan and everybody, making sure that it was grounded in another level of reality. And I think that, that, that the aggressive level of the dance evolved from that concept because it was, and working that transition because at one point Young Jelly is, conduct, is taking the street cries, which is a, 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 a verbal manifestation of the African rhythms that were present in New Orleans and the concept of these of Abdi's conducted and his his Creole body has absorbed these these African uh, rhythms it then manifests itself within his whole body and that was sort of the organic base from, on which the number was built so was the idea of meeting his young self did that come from it being Gregory and then you thought of Savian no that was no, there from that the very beginning there from very, the beginning. very beginning it was just it was sort of seeing Someone coming, someone who has lost touch with a certain level of his joy, rediscovering joy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Was um, the journey for you from L.A. to New York, putting in the the tap um, ideas, was that um, something that you you worked on with George to, to to balance through the show? Did you keep a lot of what you had there and then work? We did it. I mean, we when we came from California, we almost redid that entire show. We didn't keep that much. We had a lot of numbers that um, are in jelly heaven. Yes, are in jelly, <laughs> and I still dream about those numbers. Uh, um, no, I didn't have that much to do. I only worked with Gregory on on um, just the ideas of what we were trying to do with the number. I had nothing to do with all that. Ja that's how you jazz. But the um, marketplace, we, we worked together on that. Just how we were going to go from Africa, African-style tap, into um, the jazz. And that had to be heard and seen uh, within that number. But most of that, you know, uh, Gregory does his own. He and Ted Levy and Savion were the tap choreographers. Yeah, I'd like to add something to this whole subject of Jelly Heaven, too, because of all the shows I've worked on, with the possible exception of a chorus line, this one was more about distillation. In other words, uh, uh, we, we gave up a lot of what I thought were pretty, uh, would have been, in any other show perhaps, uh, visual moments, uh, because they weren't pointing to anything. It was like uh, George kept pulling away, pulling away, trying to get to the source, get down to the, to the very marrow of what this piece was about. And in doing that, I think we must have lost a half a dozen moments, in, uh, yeah. uh, just which were quite grand, I thought. Uh, but they didn't serve the, the piece. When did you lose them in terms of the process? Mm. Right? Some in rehearsal, some in preview, which is the most painful because everybody's yes. watching you perform open heart surgery on yourself. So it's sort of like, you know. And uh, I mean, I think in we put in an extraordinary number of new numbers in, like, almost the last week, which was just totally strange. Almost the last week. In ten days, I counted them. <laughs> and we needed a little evidence. Yeah, I don't know where these numbers came from. They just, just seem to just evolve. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get to the end and not give a chance for you all to ask this group your own questions. Is there anything anyone wants to say before I open it up? George or... Jules? Jules? I, I, there is something I always found interesting, and many people probably think it happened by accident, that, uh, that Gregory's forte being tap was a metaphor for his creating of composition. Was it, it, because I don't know how you would, in a musical, show someone on stage composing. Yeah. You couldn't show them. The, uh, you couldn't put his genius the same way... You, take Charlie Chaplin, you're not going to be able to show his genius on stage unless you try to reproduce what he did do. So I thought it was lucky in a sense that here was Gregory who has this brilliance uh, in his feet mm -hmm. and could then, you could use that in, as an author mm -hmm. to make that be the metaphor for composition. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyone from the house have questions? Yes, sir.
I think I, I just want to leap in here for one second. I think it's because there is an incredible amount of respect and love between all of us, and uh, which enables us to scream and yell and carry on and, and then to have George say, no, that's the way it is. Yeah, because there's a lot of differences. <laughs> no. <laughs> what do we think about possibly if you consider going in this direction? That's what I said on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I also think that it, it was hard. It. The, it, the show, the moment was hard. And, and, and I think the only way that we survived was that it was not my moment, my number, my song, my note, my like you, my set. I think, I think everybody... There was, I mean, I was sort of like the terrorist, but I was the terrorist of this country that we all were working for. And that was Jelly's Last Jam. You know, and so, so I think that there was not a lot of... Uh, By the way, the, the, those differences that, that do uh, emerge are almost always a source of a third place. Uh, mm-hmm. which is, exactly. Uh, it's no, the place no, where you've both gone. Uh, and it's always uh, better than either point of view. Exactly. And, and, uh, and the latter part of your question, which I think is very important... How, does, how do relationships survive those differences when the piece comes to life, when it actually emerges as a viable uh, piece of theater? Uh, everything is forgotten that was negative. And it's like, uh, it just it feels like it was all a terrific experience. You forgot all the dark moments. <laughs> and you really care about each other because something happened. It's like something was born from it. Could I just ask George... Um you have an incredible set of uh, collaborators as a director um, who can challenge you and you can wrestle with in every way. As a writer, since you were wearing both hats, did you have anyone who really was challenging you or is, are they at the table now? Um, how did you, since you couldn't, did you war with yourself? Did you just simply change hats and talk to yourself? How did you <laughs> well, get I, what you needed there? Well, I think everybody... I mean, I don't, I, I don't worship my material. I mean, I, once it's over and it's success, I go, oh, that's just incredible. But, but on, the, on, on, on the actual process of the creation, I think you really can't fall in love with anything. And, and, and once again, I mean, everybody, after a while, I almost think like, like actors, if, if actors say something the first week of, of rehearsal that about it not working, they're stupid and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. If they say it the second or the third week, you have to listen to them because they now know the rules. So I think that, that, that when the various people at this table and the various actors in the room or even, you know, the, you know I wouldn't, wouldn't listen to some of the ladies in the, because all, all, all the little ladies in the, like, the ushers, I don't think act one is really working. <laughs> you know, so they would get into that. But I think that once people have some sort of relationship with the material and they've gone on the journey of the material, I think they can offer you another reflection. Even if they're saying something is not working, you don't necessarily have to listen to them. But if they're saying something's not working for them, there's a clue that what you're intending is not clear or clean enough. So I think it's just being sensitive to, um, I don't know, you know, because I, c- I think the thing which is what's really incredibly painful and horrible about working on the show is like that bed scene. I mean, the first time I wrote a draft, I, that bed scene came to me, and it's, I think it's a wonderful moment in the theater. And then there are other sequences that require blood and agony and pain and torture before you achieve that next level. And I think that's what's... It's sort of like, you know, I was brilliant yesterday. Why am I stupid today? And I think... And, <laughs> you know, and it's... And, and I think that you, you were stupid. You're stupid... Because, because of being stupid, you go on a journey and you discover truths that you wouldn't necessarily know. And, and you argue with people. And, and I think what, what, what Robin said is so true. I think collaboration, and particularly ensemble, is, is based on everybody working at peak, being brilliant, having their exact total, this is the one solution, and then this other thing emerges. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm saying I really didn't have a choice. I had, if the moment wasn't working, I had to give it up. Do you like working on other people's plays? You As think? a director, uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I think the thing, I think the thing which is what's really fortunate about that, because working on the Zora pieces, which I adapted, which I, which was really more her than me, was I have, I had to use muscles. I mean, there were certain times where I just wanted to have something severe and hard and urban and and hostile in the middle of that play, and I couldn't because it wasn't the material. So having to do that, you're forced to use muscles. 
that you would normally do because it's, you can, you know, I think it keeps you from falling into your own, your own rhythm and your own, and, and if you fall into your rhythm all the time, I think you become rigid and you can cease to So grow. it's good for you to direct other people's work when you come back to your own, you feel that there's growth there? Well, I, I mean, it's, it's like, I, I, I think because Zora's, Zora's work has, has this very sort of intelligent, fragile energy to it, which I think by working on it, working on it off and on for about a year or so, I think that's now a part of my directing vocabulary. You know, whereas I don't think it was, I mean, I, you know, I don't think I would have done that. Right. You know, I, I was innocent. But I, I know how to do innocent and, and fragile, but not that other kind of thing. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Anyone else? Yes. I think there was sort of, I mean, I, I think you, you, the first thing you click into, at least I clicked into, was the points of pain. You know, and I knew that, that I wanted to do with the, those, the, those places of pain because there was this operating concept. There was a relationship between pain and brilliance and creativity and pain and jazz and the history of jazz. So that, so that, and he did all these uh, tapes for the Library of Congress. So, and, and a lot of things, as we all do, well, then I have a nervous breakdown, but then I bought, you know, and then you go into, but then I went and had a meal, and you describe every single detail of the meal. And you skip over the nervous breakdown. And I think in those tapes, uh, there were certain things. Like there was one line where he said, I woke up one morning and Anita took a skillet and hit me over the head. And I knew it was time to separate. <laughs> so I was just fascinated by, by what led up to that. And then I read an interview where she, uh, she was also very fascinating to me because he was married. His wife was in, in preview. She didn't make it to opening. But uh, he, was, he was married, but Anita got his estate. <coughs> So I was just very fascinated, and she also owned uh, boarding houses. So I was very intrigued by this, by this black woman being a power broker in her own arena, and that he was attracted to her, and that one day she woke up, she had a skillet on his head. So it was that, so, you know, so, so it was that sort of those piecing those facts together. And then he says, and then I bumped into this guy named Jack the Bear, and we went on the road, and we did this, and then I became fascinated by what would be and I saw a picture of him, because Jelly Roll Morton did minstrel shows once, and I, I saw a picture of him with this guy who was not Jack the Bear, but he was very light-skinned, and this other guy was very dark-skinned. So that guy came to me, became to me, to me to be Jack the Bear. And so, so by piece, by seeing these facts, and so, you know what I mean? So it was stretching out the thing from that, from going, I mean, it's, it, it was sort of like doing investigative work, where particularly in, on those tapes, when he would skip over or when he would trivialize a painful moment, I knew that there was some other kind of fascinating pain or dirt or, or energy going on. That was, that's where the drama was. Do you want to talk about those tapes at all? Some people may. Oh, they're really great. He did a series of tapes for the Library of Congress where he just tells his story. And it's really wonderful. And he plays the piano and he talks in his voice. And he's, it's, they're, they're wonderful, charming, elegant. And there's... They're, a history of, 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 of America at that time. They're really wonderful tapes. And how did you get a hold of those tapes? Were they brought to you the, with the project? Yes, or they were. Uh-huh. Little Summer, who sat at the computer, and we would come up with all of these Names. terrible... <laughs> and Randall would type them on the computer and then... You know, Print them out in large size. Big, <laughs> Apple on the market. <laughs> <laughs> and, and George kept saying, Jelly's Last Gem, and we kept saying... No, God, it sounds like a regional theater title. No, no. <laughs> Spoken like a New York snob. That's all. The show was originally titled Mr. Jelly Lord. That's when I got involved was Mr. Jelly Lord. It was a great song, but it's, no. Yes, sir. Some of them, I guess. Uh, uh, there were some, some pieces of music that were from the tape. Most of the music, I think we tried, first of all, to get music that we thought would be, was the most popular of the Jelly Roll stuff that people would recognize more. Um, 
What did we get from that tape? I tell you what, I tell, we, we, got, we got a song, which I think is yes, really, uh, it, which is indicative of how this show happened. We got this song called Salty Dog, salty which is, don't, 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 you salty dog. Don't, 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 you salty dog. Don't, 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 you salty dog. Don't, 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 you salty dog, which Luther and Susan transformed into That's How You Jazz. Because it, it, was, it was such a, a sort of who cares number that it seemed to be the perfect place to explore, to jazz it up. And it was really, that, that, was, that was the one absolute song that we got from that. I think that uh, about the music, too, the thematic uh, 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 King Porter Stump is probably the most well-known of the general compositions. I think that one of the problems that we had is that there was no uh, real, what you call, insurance in terms of the music the general wrote. In other words, I mean, or that he was, that he played and so forth. It's not like, uh, you know, Duke Ellington, he's got global hits, you know, uh, Fats Waller has things that's, that's very, no, most of the, most of the people uh, uh, know, all, know, the, know the name Jerry O. Morton, but they never know what, they, don't, they can't hum you any of these tunes, they don't know any of these tunes, and for good reason, because he played, this is what he did, he was an instrumentalist. Anyway, King Porter Stump, is the most popular, one of the most popular jazz pieces. Uh, and um, it's the, it, it, it forms the theme of, of our show. And an interesting aside is that out of about, I guess, a half a dozen recordings that I might have gotten, uh, there isn't a single one of them that seems to bear very much resemblance to the original thing that Jelly Roll wrote because they, had, they all used the chords and they jazzed up things. And even Jelly Roll, in playing his, playing his own piece, very seldom used, very seldom uh, continued his theme. He would go about four bars, and then he would go off onto some riffs and so forth. Well, uh, we had to do a lot of changing around with that, and that's, I don't know, that's just an aside that occurred to me about where do we get the music. Uh, much of it had to do with 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 George's uh, looking into these these pieces, how did you say, George, for the dramatic content if they were played in some other fashion? I forget those were not his words, but what he meant was that uh, something that was a that was played that was a, fa a fast tune might have something else in it that would mean something. We would slow it down, change it, and do other things like that. A lot of that. A lot of that. Uh, sometimes what would happen is that they wouldn't just, uh, it would suggest things that they wouldn't be there at all in Jelly's music. So uh, uh, I would make out like I was Jelly Roll and write something original. And um, uh, yeah, there was one number in particular which was called Blue Blood Blues, which is this very elegant number, which is, I believe, a clarinet and a trumpet. Is it a clarinet and a yeah. trumpet? There's a clarinet and a trumpet that take turns and they're like talking to each other and they're working around each other. And that sort of became the basis of the song that Jelly and Anita do in Act Two after they come back together. Mm -hmm. Because it was, it, that what was going on metaphorically, what was going on in the music was reflective metaphorically of where, where they wanted to be. They wanted to figure out how they could exist with each other, how they could be, be two completely different instruments but, but work around each other. So th in that case, it's very fascinating because the actual dynamic of the tune revealed a dramatic moment. So the tune came first? Well, it was, we, we, we knew there was something, that was this, there was a yeah. sort of ballad between the two of them, and we knew it was going to sort of happen in Act Two, but I think sort of the tune... It just uh, felt right. It yeah. felt right dramatically. Uh -huh. It was elegant. It was a much more mature Morton, and there was this counterpoint going on between these two instruments that was just elegant and wonderful. And that's what... Did you start with that when... So for the lyrics, was it? You knew what the moment was that they were coming I think back you had together. The you had, already. You I had think, the lyrics I think already. She, she, oh, I yeah, think I started. Done them from a previous. Uh, previous Before Luther uh, yeah. came into so it. The one thing about Susie is that she she will, she writes lyrics for everything, whether it's accompaniment, melody, bass line, <laughs> or whatever it is. She writes. The, she'll write the lyric, and, uh, and there you are with this, a bunch of lyrics. And we don't know who's going to sing all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then what do okay. you do with it? Well...
He says, no. Look at it. Look at it. I talked to Susie very quietly. <laughs> and she scowls a little bit. And then she comes up with a brilliant lyric. What can I tell you? Say please. Somebody up there. Yes, sir. Yes. I uh, I saw her uh, show in in previous in April. I guess it was. And uh, I thought we uh, we staying in company for everything that we did. That's the whole range of life. The whole range of very very high standards. But I I found the character Joey Rose Martin extremely hard. Angry. So you saw it in previews? Yes. Yes. In April. Well, you need to come back and see it, and then we can. Have that. No, I, I think, I think there is. I don't think it's too much change. I, I think what there is a redemption to the character. I mean, I think that the character goes on a very specific emotional journey, I think, because I, I mean, we had a lot of conversations with Gregory where Gregory was saying, I'm saying horrible things at the end of Act 1, and just before Act 2 is ending, I'm saying the same horrible things. And I, and I was going, well, the first time you're saying horrible things, you're this very arrogant person standing in the middle of the room with your chest puffed out, and you're clobbering the world because you're on top. But in Act 2, you're this mouse cowering in the corner who has lost all his power, so that therefore there's another level of vulnerability that is informing the attempts at cruelty. And so that I think that Ultimately, the, the, the thing which I think what the piece is about is sort of is honoring the source, honoring the place from which you come from. And I think that that that, that there's a song. I'm not sure. I think the song was in there, uh, which was this, the Creole Boy song at the end of the show, that which has stunning lyrics. And and uh, there's also this moment which was added, which which has like, these breathtaking lights by Jules, which is the stage is completely empty, and and people are hurling. I don't know if you saw. People are hurling at Jelly. All of the words that were thrown, that he's been hurling at everybody else. And then he goes on this journey, in which he, in essence, in many respects, for, admits his sins and forgives himself in some peculiar way, or in, not so much admits his sins and then embraces the people that he's been unable to embrace. So I think that there is redemption, and I think um, I, was, I was particularly, one of the things that I loved about the character was that his, his, his sort of his combination of his charm and his hostility, because he was sort of like, Every man, the asshole. You know what I mean? In some peculiar way, he's he's all of the things that we all have that we use as weapons to to protect ourselves from our own fear. And and it was a peculiar thing, navigating and negotiating that journey. And I think Gregory, being as charming a performer as he is, aided in that journey and also made it very conflicting because he's a very likable person doing not nice things to people who he clearly loves. And I and that little peculiar thing that I just uh, said. I found it incredibly compelling. Yes. Me personally? When those producers called up. Well, actually, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, I was, I, w- I was working on a project about New Orleans about, in, back in 1978. And, and I kept on reading stuff about this mythical guy who had a diamond in his tooth and had all these suits. And, and I was sort of, and I listening to the music, but he became this tangential figure. There's actually a figure called Buddy Bolden, who, who, who I was much more obsessed with because Buddy felt this other kind of texture and Jelly felt frivolous when I was doing my initial research on this other project. And then when I, um, when the, when they, when I got the call to work on the show, then I went on this journey and I was sort of consumed by the character. And I added in the Buddy character simply because I love who he is and what he represents so much. Yes, sir. I disagree. Uh, no, I really do. I really do. Similarly, because I think it, the show shrinks, but I think it, 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 it goes into another level of intimacy. I mean, it was a, I don't know if the, the, the other folks could talk. It was, it, was a, it was an intense period working on the show in previews, and I think that that was the, the act that went through the most scrutiny. So maybe Does other people. But I, talk I, about I, the second act? Well, it's, you know, it's pretty clear yeah. in the, just in the story. The first act's all about jealous success. And he's a great success in Chicago, and he came to New York, and the bottom fell out. 
So that's going to leave you with some disappointment if you just read it in the book. But there, uh, I think that's been emphasized because the realizations that that uh, Jelly comes to in the second act are the ones that uh, made his life uh, important. And it wasn't just the success that he was having in the first. So it's just it's really putting on a different hat when you come back from intermission. And I know it was hard for me at first, but but uh, maybe if, if you see it a few times, it's easier. But it, there, it's a big difference. It's a big difference in the play because it's a big difference in the life. Well, I, I, I'm also in a peculiar way. I'm, I'm, I feel I, I'm, I'm very attracted to him. I don't know. There's something in, in the first act. He's an extraordinary man doing extraordinary things, and we're not extraordinary people. We're just human beings trying to find our way. And in the and in the second act. He deals with failing, loving somebody intensely who he just doesn't know how to make it work and confronting his own sins and his own demons. And I, I'm, I'm more drawn to that just in terms of, of because I feel that's, that's more like me, you know. <laughs> George loves it down here. <laughs> there was someone over here with a hand up. Yes, sir. Actually, one thing I was truly impressed with was the consistency of the show. But in line with that, in what you were trying to do with the show, I also did you find that any of the creative staff, or in particular from the directorial standpoint, dealing with any of the companies that you worked with, that there was any contemporary baggage that they were carrying that kind of ran against the wall occasionally, trying to deal with the material you were dealing with and still be consistent with Well, that was just one time when we when we changed the number that ends Act One. And the actors had to put on white lips, i.e., put on coon faces. There was, uh, uh, up to that point, they were wearing masks, and the mask didn't work. It was a great number, but it didn't work. So then we, we they had, I told them they had to put on white lips, and there were people were crying, people were in pain, people were full of rage, and they performed that number like that. <laughs> and it was extraordinary. And people were going, bravo, bravo. I went, oh, I guess we're going to have to keep the white lips. So it's sort of like, but that, that was the one place where it was very, that was really very fascinating, and I felt, and I felt deeply conflicted because by that time I, I, I felt responsible for the journey that I had taken them on. And I felt as though we, we made a turn down an alley that was very painful and horrifying for a lot of people, but was correct for the moment. That was difficult. Yes, sir. The original lyrics came with some of this period. Well, I think that uh, because we were using, because we were writing a theatrical score, and because we were telling the story, we had to sort of dismiss the ideas within the songs, and we used the music so differently, too. I mean, we would twist and contort the music, and Luther would compose new pieces of music. There were a few lines that we retained. I mean, Michigan Water tastes like sherry wine. It's a traditional blues song, and it's wonderful. So we kept that. And the opening line of Dr. Jazz, um, we kept. The rest of it was completely rewritten. But Everything about this piece had to tell the story, so we had to really start from scratch. Uh, wait, someone who hasn't, the woman in Chimney Man. Oh, he, he, he was, it was, it was very interesting. I, I did an early draft, and I gave it to Joe Papp to read. Amen. No, 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 no. But that character at the end, that chimney man, that chimney man character, because he came, I just gave it was fact when he said, he's really interesting, he's really interesting. So I said, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. <laughs> and then about, you know, a, a, a few months later, I started writing the piece, and the, the character, chimney man, was the first person who was speaking and talking. And, 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 and I went back to Joe, and I said, you, you, you know that, what you said about the chimney man character, he has become this very important person in the play. And he said, well, you want to know why? I went, okay. Mm -hmm. Why, Joe? He said, because you've, through him, you can use your voice. Because through him, you can sort of say the things that, 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 that you want to say about the culture and et cetera. I think he, he was also very fascinating because he, it, it was an attempt to, he's, he's based on a, uh, a character, a force in uh, Haitian voodoo called Baron Samdi, uh, who stands in between life and death. And his silhouette is a top hat and a cutaway, and he has a cigar. Because when he 
flicks the ashes, she's, she's flicking, flicking sperm back into the earth and repopulating it, which is what the process of death does. And the chimney sweeps of New Orleans had the exact same silhouette, which was a top hat and a cutaway. So it's like taking, and Baron Samedi is based on an African figure in Yoruba, I believe. So it was sort of like, so he became ancient, and so it was, it was like an African manifestation in, New, in Jelly's New Orleans world. So that's sort of conceptually how he came about. Yes. Well, and a, a wonderful actor named Oba Babatunde did it in Los Angeles. Uh, the, the project was, quote unquote, originally conceived for Gregory. Um, the script and I think the show had to go on a journey of being a show. I don't, I don't think none of this was ever, con ever conscious, but looking back in hindsight, I think this, that was the order that, that the show was, there was a show to write for, Jelly, for Gregory, but you couldn't write a show for, for Gregory, you had to write a show for Jelly. So that somehow the experience of in Los Angeles afforded us, I think, in many respects, a chance to ground the reality of the world and the dynamics and the journey of the piece. And then uh, once it became clear where we were, that where the piece was going, uh, and Gregory also at the time in Los Angeles had a schedule conflict, so it, it became this process of can we now unite these two energies? We have time for one last question. Yes, sir. Yeah. When you're uh, evolving original piece like this, there are a lot of drafts and workshops and discussions. What happens when someone says to you, you know, it's a little better two versions of the did that I don't know. That's just an opinion, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I think the thing which is what I think happens is, I'm sorry. I think the thing which is, I'm running my mouth. I wish somebody else don't know. But it's like, I, I, I think the thing is what happens is that there were things that we cut, whole songs that we cut out that somehow emotionally were still a part of the piece. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that that's the wonderful things about drafts, that each, each time you write a new draft, you really aren't losing what you had. You're just condensing it. So that therefore there was this, you know, a, a thing which maybe may have been a whole scene is, is one line, but the full power of that whole scene is now in that one line. So I think that's sort of like the semi-healthy way I... Look, choose to look at losing arms and limbs. You know what I mean? Because that's really what it is. And I think, you know, particularly for Susan and Luther, because, I mean, in many respects, to, re to rewrite words is a very, and, and, and hope, too, I think, in many respects, to rewrite words is, it's, it's difficult, but in, when you're dealing with very rigid structures that are based on fundamentally numbers, and you have to throw them out and reorganize. I think it's infinitely much more painful. I would never say this to them. And if I and on the next show we work on, I will go back and not say that I said it. But I think it's you know I think it's it's an infinitely much more painful and awkward process for 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 dance structures and song structures than it is for text. It is. <laughs> oh, all right. Is it fast? A quick a quick last question. <laughs> I was waiting for that question. Uh, anybody can answer. I've, uh, yes. 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 yes, they were very, very, very supportive. Unbelievably so. Yes, they really were. They were out hawking their houses. Uh, hawking their homes and yeah. beg borrowing. I mean, literally begging and talking to everybody. They were uh, really I, I gung-ho. They really were. Encapsulated in, in a little speech that was that you spoke about at the last thing, where, I mean, they really, at great risk, let us um, do what we felt we had to do. But I, th I, I think in many respects, I think any producers do anything at great risk. I think the difference was that when we were in previews and they were going, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, and, and things were successful and not successful, they came to us and said, or they said to Margo and said, in essence, we would rather lose all of our investment to turn this show into something that is not, rather than compromise the vision and the journey, because we are all on this journey because of what we are trying to do, and we don't want you to compromise on that journey. And so it was, it was a phenomenal application. Really. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the first time I, I've heard that in 30, 30 years on Broadway. Very, I have never heard it before. That's <laughs> my only, first. only time.
Less yeah. because and it does it. What it does is it makes you pitch in a little more. Yeah. You know, just go go the extra minute. Pam Coslow and Margot Lyon and Drew Jamsons. Drew Jamsons and Paul Leptic and Roger Hesden. <laughs> but I think it was, just, it was mainly Margot Lyon and Pam Coslow. Margot and Pam are the principal. Well, on that note of not compromising the vision, um, and thank you all very much for being here. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.